Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to City Game, your Brooklyn Nets podcast on WFAN and Radio.com. Here's your host, Steve Lichtenstein. And hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the City Game podcast, the show for Brooklyn Nets fans. I'm Steve Lichtenstein of WFAN.com, and folks... Game 1 of the Eastern Conference quarterfinals went about as well as I expected. 134-110 Raptors win over the Nets. Brooklyn got down by as many as 33 points in the first half and showed their fight in the third quarter to cut the deficit to single digits. And of course, got blown out when Toronto got serious again in the fourth quarter. On this show, I'll be getting you insight on the game from one of the Nets' excellent beat reporters, Greg Logan of Newsday is on the show today, so hope you enjoy this episode on Radio.com, Stitcher, or whatever platform you're using while the station continues to finish working out the technical difficulties with Apple Podcasts. And again, I thank you for your support with that. Now, on to Game 1. So folks, when Timothy Luau Cabrera was your best player, this is the result you're going to get. And he, he clearly was Brooklyn's best player. You know, led the way with 26 points, shot it really efficiently, had some nice finishes off drives, only one turnover. Even played some decent defense. You know, something I've been hammering him on all year, including just last week. I have to say, you know, give him credit. He definitely showed up, no doubt about it. But unfortunately, the Nets needed Karis LeVert to be the best player on the floor. And though he posted some good stats, like his 15 assists, he really didn't come close. 5 for 14 shooting, 5 turnovers. More worrisome, you know, looked to me like he tweaked something after taking a shot in the third quarter. He came back, but he just didn't look right. That quick first step disappeared. In the fourth quarter, when it should have been his time, he took two shots, missing a 3 and a 2. 
two costly turnovers as well. And Coach Jacques Vaughn finally got him out of there with the Nets down 17 with less than four minutes to go. Now, I haven't heard anything more about it since, you know, thank you, Yes Network, making sure you got us to that Yankees pregame show for game number 22 or whatever instead of finding airtime for a Nets postgame show. It's only the NBA playoffs. You know, just a cherry on top of a really frustrating day. You know why? Now it's only one loss in a best-of-seven series, but when you dive into this game, Nets really didn't play all that poorly. Held their own on the boards, kept the turnover margin within reason, and lost the fast-break point battle by only three points. All the things that Toronto typically feasts on when these two teams meet. This game really just came down to the fact that the Raptors made shots. 22 of 44 from three. You give them space, whether it's Fred Van Vliet, Kyle Lowry, OG Ananobi, or future Nets Serge Ibaka, and the ball has a pretty good chance of going through the hoop. Sometimes, you know, they even make the tough ones too. You know, Van Vliet was just unconscious. And by the way, I was just kidding about that future Net Ibaka comment, folks. Don't get all riled up. Meanwhile, on the other side of the floor, my ears are still ringing from Garrett Temple's bricks. Toronto's defense is just so darn good that you can't afford to miss your wide-open three-point looks. Temple missed nine of them out of ten. Absolutely killed the Nets. You know, ball movement is fantastic, but in these games, what good is it if it doesn't translate into points? I don't know. I think Vaughn looked as scared of the moment as his players did in the opening 20 minutes. You know, why not sub out Temple after three misses instead of five? Also, you know, keeping Rodion's Karutz on the floor so he could pick up his fifth foul with 28 seconds left in the first half. And where was the zone defense? I heard from so many people over the weekend how the Raptors were like the worst half-court offense in the league when facing zones. Nets didn't even try it once. But, you know, of course, Vaughn is going to be praised to the high heavens in the mainstream media because, you know, the Nets did show some fight in coming back to make it interesting for a few minutes. And yes, that's admirable for this team and says a lot about their culture. And I do acknowledge that they did it while being severely undermanned. Toronto has like seven of the best ten players in the series and like half the Nets roster belongs in the G League. But folks, there's no moral victory world, not even on Disney property. Maybe the Raptors put themselves in cruise control too early, who knows. What I do know is that when they needed to turn that switch back on, it really wasn't all that difficult. In like three minutes, their lead went from 9 to 15, and you know, with Levert laboring, it was kind of over. I think my main point is that the Nets were just not ready for what everyone knew the Raptors would bring. You know, in-your-chest defense with scoring at every position. Everything the Raptors did was faster than what the Nets experienced during those seeding games. Their defensive rotations, their transition game, etc. Now, Brooklyn had to know that. And they didn't heed my advice from last week when I said these games can just as easily be lost in the first half as in the fourth quarter. I mean, how many times has a team come back from 33 points down to win in the playoffs? So that's kind of why I found it disappointing that the game wasn't really competitive. And look, I mean, I agree there were positive moments. You know, I mentioned TLC at the top. But it was also nice to see Joe Harris shoot the ball well after that 
dreadful playoff performance last year versus the Sixers. He didn't seem rattled when Toronto top-locked him. You know, he stayed patient, made good decisions with the ball, took what was given, still got his 19 points. And of course, there was that monster Jared Allen dunk over Ibaka in the fourth quarter. I think I mentioned last week that I like to see him go hard at the rim a lot more often, you know, instead of throwing up those soft layups. You know, that was a highlight real play, but you know what? So was Toronto's ensuing possession when Lowry missed a three, and Ananobi outworked two or three nets, including Allen, come up with the rebound and finished it with an and one. Now, I thought that was a huge swing play in the game, and of course it went against Brooklyn because Allen wasn't physically imposing his will. So par for the course, folks. You know, if it sounds like I'm getting too upset, I just want to point out that I hate the Raptors, especially Lowry. Really good player, but I despise how he goes about his business. All the flopping and stuff. You know, everyone marvels at how many times this guy hits the floor. Arms and legs flailing. Folks, on many occasions, it's an act. And the refs buy it. Incredible. My best tweet of the night may have been when Marcus Gasol, the Toronto center, he was called for a foul after a roadie flop and complained to the refs about it. You know, he, Gasol may have been correct in his interpretation of the play, but I found it to be hypocrisy at its finest. Anyway, on to game two. Let's get a day off before trying again on Wednesday afternoon. No primetime scheduling for this series, folks, not unless the Nets somehow find a way to extend things. And hopefully Levert is okay. I'm going to ask Greg Logan about it in a minute. Vaughn did mention in the pregame that Jamal Crawford would miss a few more games with his hamstring injury. That's a bummer. Nets could really use his offensive creativity. But as for adjustments, there's not really many I'd make. I mean, I'd keep the same starting five, just with shorter leashes for Rodian and Temple. Now, Toronto has small guards, which shouldn't expose guys like Tyler Johnson and Chris Chioza as much as if they were facing, say, Philadelphia. But Jock, please, you gotta go with the hot hand. Temple isn't Levert. If he goes off, it's because it was a blessing, not a guarantee. Of course, you know, Johnson and Chioza didn't exactly distinguish themselves yesterday. You know, Johnson somehow managed to post a minus 29 in 17 minutes. Tactically, I do think the Nets need to mix things up on defense. You know, the only wrinkle I saw was that sometimes they went out of their way to make sure... Allen could stay in the paint if Gasol or Ibaka set a high screen. You know, they'd switch someone like Harris onto them if they would pop out to the three-point line. Maybe try different zones. Junk it up. Not going to beat this team man-on-man. Unless, you know, they get drunk on overconfidence. That doesn't seem to be part of their championship DNA, though. So, let's bring on Greg Logan of Newsday. He's a City Game Podcast regular. And I'm so grateful he bailed me out last night after filing his stories for Newsday. Here's my interview with Greg. I'm thrilled to be joined once again by City Game Podcast regular Greg Logan of Newsday. Greg, thank you so, so much for giving me time after that uh, wipeout in Game 1 with the Nets and the Raptors. Uh, We did not get any post-game coverage uh, on the Yes Network because, you know, they had to get to Yankees pregame show for, you know, game 22. 
So what could you tell us was the takeaway from, you know, who you've talked to in the postgame? Well, uh, definitely the Nets were impressed by the defense that uh, Toronto played against them. Karis LeVert uh, talked extensively about how they had a trapping scheme that sent multiple defenders at him in every possible place where he gets a shot, you know, in his ISOs, uh, on his uh, ball screens, at the top of the key, you know, they were trying to take everything away from him that they could. And then they also uh, attacked uh, Joe Harris. Uh, You know, they started out with Kyle Lowry on him, and uh, but they also sent uh, uh, multiple defenders toward him. So it took a while for him to get going from three-point range, but he finally did after the game was a little bit out of control. Uh, however, you know, the the key thing in this game is that Toronto was up 33 about two-thirds of the way through the second quarter, and it had all the ear-makings of just an embarrassing, phenomenal uh, yeah, wipeout. Was... And... Uh, and for them to, to – I didn't take the 16-5 run at the end of the half too seriously. It, it, it cut the lead to, to 22. But then when they carried that into the third quarter and got the lead down to eight points, you know, it was, a, it was an extended run of 47-22, to 22, so a 25-point swing. That was impressive to me. And, and so in talking to Karis and to Timothy Luawu Kabaro, uh, they talked about how important that was for the confidence of the team going forward. Jock Vaughn said he thought it was triggered by improved transition defense in the second quarter, but also uh, at the offensive end, it was just that the Nets realized they had to really keep making the extra pass. because, Like LaVert said, you would get an open shot at the start of each sequence, and that's the shot they wanted you to take. And so what you had to do was keep moving the ball, moving your feet, and keep going until you could get the shot you really wanted. And, uh, and so that was a very impressive comeback. Now, in the fourth quarter, they were still within nine, and then... Fred Van Vliet just went off again, and he hit a couple of threes. O.G. Ananobi uh, hit a three and made a three-point play, and next thing you know, it's a 15-7 run, and, and the lead is back to 17. Well, they were dead at that point because you know, they, they had given it their all to get to that point. So you can look at the end. It was a 24-point loss. Uh, that doesn't look good, but a lot of that came you know, uh, against the uh, – the, at the tail end of the game, but just the fact they got it from 33 down to eight was very encouraging. And so, uh, uh, TLC, you know, he was he was a, a little over enthusiastic, but he said that the talk after the game was that he felt that they had found the recipe for how to attack this Toronto defense, and that they just have to attack it that way. Uh, from the start because they can't afford to get down the way they did. And LeBert also, the other thing I would say is that he said that their defense just wasn't any good in the first quarter and that it was to the point of where Toronto shots were almost like uh, freebies. Uh, he called them practice warm-ups. Uh, so, so I think you'll see a more focused 
Nets team in Game Two. They have a taste of it now, and I think they 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 will be better prepared for what to expect. Well, you know, I have another theory why that fourth quarter went the way it did, and I know you told me before that no one really asked about Levert, but I wanted to ask if you noticed that he came down funny on a shot in the third quarter, late third quarter, about a minute to go, and that was the play where Van Vliet just took off and went coast to coast, and the Nets called timeout and Levert Honestly, took a seat. Honestly, you didn't see it? You know, in, in, in the fourth quarter, you know, I'm, I'm alternating between writing down each play as it happens, a play-by-play, but I'm also, uh, sometimes I miss plays because I'm also in the middle of of writing my running story that has to be filed like within a minute or two after the game. Right. And so my head is down, I catch up on the play-by-play, so I missed it. You know, but I've been asking around uh, since then, uh, primarily because I saw your tweets, and uh, and so far the Nets don't have an answer for me. Uh, I, I guess we have to wait until uh, tomorrow's late afternoon uh Zoom press conference to see what the injury update is. Okay, well, we did get an injury update about Jamal Crawford uh, that he's going to miss a few games. Um, have you found out what he... That he would he would definitely be miss the first two games, and then after that, they'll go game by game in terms of assessment. I remember I used to have to ask Kenny Atkinson really specific questions like, can the guy run? You know, when Kyrie, was he shooting? You know, things of that nature, because you wouldn't get, you know, all you would get is he's progressing, you know, you know, something that would yeah, well, put you off. a little more specific. Uh, he offers a little more to go on. Uh, he's not quite so so closed off on that subject. Uh, but I don't think he knows where it stands right now. I, I think he's just relying on the performance team uh, to evaluate Jamal. I mean, you know, the, the man is 40 years old, so uh, right. we just have to kind of see where it goes. I mean, if he's not running by now, I mean, we can forget it. You know, that's, the season well, will be yeah, over on, by thing, the weekend. I know one thing. I, I asked about if he had practiced with them uh, on Sunday, and he had not. So that tends to make me think it'll be later rather than sooner. Okay. Well, uh, just moving on, a couple of the things that Jock did or rather did not do. He let Garrett Temple... Uh, missed five three-pointers, wide-open three-pointers, and he kept them in. And he also kept Rody in with four fouls. I don't know if you've you've been you've seen a lot, you've covered a lot more games. Not because you're that much older than me, but you've been in the business longer than me. Have you ever seen a player get five fouls in the first half? That might be the first time I've seen a player get five fouls in the first half. When Rody picked up that fifth, I I, I wasn't really thinking about it at the time, but when they said that was his fifth foul, I was going, what the heck was Jacques thinking to leave him on the floor at that time? I mean, I know he likes his activity, he likes his length, and they're trying to get back in the game, so he took a shot. Uh, but I've never seen a guy pick up five fouls like that. But then the, the, de- the upside to that is that TLC started the third quarter, and that's when they made their big run. So, you know, it all kind of worked out, but, but no, I've, I've never seen a, a guy get five fouls in the first half like that before. Well, uh, so. it's just one game, I know, but do you think we'll see something different for game two? I'm going to throw out some things. Do you think TLC starts? Do you think uh, Garrett Temple has a shorter leash? Do you think they'll play more zone defense? Well, some zone defense. Well, 
I think that uh, I think Rody will still start because Jock is a kind of guy. He, he he's he's kind of settled on this one rotation, and I think he likes TLC off the bench. You know, because you want to have a guy who can come off the bench and lift you on offense the way Dinwiddie used to do. So I think he'll stick with that. You know, shorter leash for Garrett. I think he'll play it by ear. I, I think it just goes game by game. Like Garrett, you know, yeah, he missed his first five shots. They were wide open looks. I was with you, and those were critical because given the attention that Karras was getting, the open guy has got to put those down, and he was the open guy. So that didn't work out well for them. Uh, but I think Jacques will just try to judge it by by how he's going early in the game, and if it starts out the same way, then I think he might pull the ripcord a, a little bit earlier and bring in Tyler, because uh, I think I think Tyler Johnson would have been uh, a, a better alternative in that situation, and, and so maybe next time he won't be allowed to miss five in a row. You know, we'll see uh, how it goes from there. And Sorry, I, I forgot. The zone Sorry. defense, you know, we, you know, I, oh. I don't know how much you read of Alex Schiffer, you know, from the Athletic, but he must have written about five times in different articles how Toronto was last in the league in offensive efficiency versus zone defenses. I don't think Jock played it once. You know, I didn't see that. Uh, I, uh, but maybe that's something he's going to have to consider. Uh, I just think that. Uh, one way or another, they have to find an answer for Fred VanVleet. And that is a question I asked Jock after the game, is what do they have to do against him? And, you know, he was talking about they have to do a little more film study and, and decide how to handle him, how to rotate to him, and so on. But at the same time, he gave him credit because Freddie was hitting from deep. And, I mean, he had three at least three of his eight three-pointers were from well beyond the arc. So it's just one of those games where he was dialed in and was just killing him. You know, it, it's pretty tough to go out to, you know, 30 feet and guard the guy. Uh, uh, if you, you almost have to tip your hat to him in this case. But, you know, not I'm, I might be the only one who did this, but I voted for Fred Van Vliet as my most improved player of the year in the NBA awards. I, I wouldn't I, say I, I, was, I saw some of your awards, of, your award choices. I was thinking of Doncic because I was thinking of him as like a first team all-star. So I don't think of guys like that for the most improved, but Fred Van Vliet has started every, he was a six man in the past. He started every game this year and he, his numbers are way, way up to the highest of his career by far. And I think we saw today, you know, the kind of impact uh, that he can have on a game. You know, as good as Kyle Lowry is in his all-around game with his defense and everything, you know, Fred Van Bleek took over that game today. Yes, I agree. And I saw your picks, and I saw the heat you were getting for some of them. I have one question, uh, you know, because I'm not a big Jacques Vaughn fan. But I agree that he did a really, really good job. You know, it was a tough situation in the bubble, and I couldn't believe that Terry Stotts beat him out. I mean, Vaughn outcoached him by a ton in a game that Portland had to have, and the Nets couldn't care less about. So, I, I, I like Terry Stotts as a coach a lot. I think he's an outstanding coach. 
and roll out the ball for Damian Lillard to average 40 a game. Exactly, exactly. So, so Jacques deserved uh, uh, to at least be second. I mean, you know, Monty Williams, he went 8-0. And, and that was with a team that lost a tiebreaker for the play. So I all, all credit to Monty, no doubt about that. But Jacques was dealing with more adverse circumstances than any coach in the bubble, considering all the players the Nets have lost. And I'm, I'm just extremely impressed with the job he has done, and most particularly uh, the level of communication and comfort that the players seem to have with him. Now, we don't know how the two biggest players feel about him, right. but the players who are in Orlando love him to death. Well, that's that's an incredible update for you, Greg Logan of Newsday. Thank you. Thank you so much for uh, giving me your time tonight. Uh, one of these days, we'll gather at Barclays Center again, hopefully next oh, season. But <laughs> I pray to God that that happens. Keep doing your yeoman's-like anyway, work for Newsday. Keep doing your yeoman's-like work for Newsday, and I'll talk to you soon. Again, thank you very much to Greg Logan of Newsday. Great spot as always. Uh, I do want to point out that Greg did text me afterwards, and he told me that the Nets PR staff had no knowledge of any injury to Levert. You know, great news if true, so let's keep our fingers crossed. So before I sign off, I did want to talk about the latest developments going on with the Nets coaching situation. Obviously, you know, Vaughn's performance going forward could play a factor, but if you read that story in the LA Times... You know that Nets ownership is looking at bigger fish to reel in. You know, I don't know how clued in on this stuff this writer is or if the story is nothing more than clickbait. But to me, it's certainly believable that Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving are going to have a say as to who's coaching this team in 2020-21. The writer also threw cold water on the Greg Popovich to Brooklyn speculation, you know, which I've discussed in prior podcasts, said that Joseph Tsai wants to make a run at him, but, you know, it'll ultimately be fruitless. Now, with regard to my favorite candidate, and that's Clippers assistant Tyron Lue, things got dicier for Brooklyn when the Pelicans fired Alvin Gentry this week. Remember, Lue and Pelicans president David Griffin have a history together, and that history included an NBA title in Cleveland. And there's nothing out there to suggest that the relationship soured when Lou departed a sinking ship. So would Lou be better off waiting this out to see which job gets him the best offer? I mean, to me, he'll be the best candidate on the market, unless, you know, the likely event that Pop gives word that he's ready to leave San Antonio. You know, I don't know. Tom Thibodeau could have had a wider range of jobs to pick too. But in the end, he was comfortable with Knicks president Leon Rose and signed there when the money was right. You don't think Thibodeau would have been considered for the Philly job when Brett Brown has inevitably shown the door after he's bounced in the first round? Or maybe Houston, you know, if, as expected, Mike D'Antoni walks away there? Sometimes it pays not to wait if you can get what you want right away. That's what I'm worried about with Lou. New Orleans shouldn't be as close to a title as Brooklyn next season, but they may have a better future with all their young studs if they can keep them together and playing the right way. Look, I have no idea what Lou wants, other than I've heard that Brooklyn would be on his list. Him and Kyrie are fine. 
So let's say Lou waits on the Nets and then they do get Popovich. Now Lou's dealing with fewer options to play off each other in negotiations. They have to take less money or get saddled with assistance he doesn't want. That happens all the time. Happened to Thibodeau. Or did you really think he wanted to have a guy who's never coached in the NBA become the highest paid assistant in the league? Well, you know, Kenny Payne may get the work done. The Kentucky players do hold him in high regard. But him getting that job, that was pure management politics. Who's Payne going to be loyal to? Not his boss, the head coach. Like I said, if Lou gets what he wants from the Pelicans, he may just take it. And that would be another bit of bad news for the Nets, in my opinion. So that'll wrap up this episode of the City Game Podcast. Thanks again to Greg Logan of Newsday for coming to my rescue as my special guest. Hope you enjoyed it. I'll have a piece on WFAN.com after Nets-Raptors Game 2. And then I gotta play it by ear over the weekend. No matter what, I'll have something new recorded by early next week. Let's hope it's not a season finale. And with that, this is Steve Lichtenstein of WFN.com saying thank you for listening to the City Game Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.